Greetings. Welcome to White's Run Baptist Church Online. Today we're going to take a look in Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to learn a great lesson that in all the things we see in the life of a man named Joseph, that God indeed meant it for good. I want to welcome you to this session, and I want to give uh, an introduction by uh, way of remembering what this series is about. The series Beginnings is designed to take a look at the first five books of the Bible, uh, and particularly at the covenants revealed in those books, in order for us to establish a framework by which we can understand all of Scripture and indeed understand our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're taking a look at the events that, the major events that point to Jesus Christ, that illustrate God making these covenants uh, throughout time in order to fulfill them in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, last time we looked at Genesis chapter 24, and we saw indeed that Scripture is often layered with meaning. That is, there's a very plain revelation, a uh, historical narrative of what happened and what God is doing to bring forth these covenants and to bring forth Jesus Christ. But then we see that woven in there are these living examples of people who uh, were working out their faith and following God uh, to some success and sometimes not success. A very honest look at living examples for us of how to live a life in Jesus Christ. Then we see also that uh, Scripture has layers of prophecies and typologies, that is, things that foreshadow or predict very plainly Jesus Christ and what would be the nature of his ministry and the salvation found in him. So we're taking a look at many of those things and continuing through the entire Bible, we see these very honest histories of people through whom Christ comes. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 50 today, and you may be thinking, okay, what happened to chapters 25 through 50? Last time we were in chapter 24, now we're in chapter 50. Yeah, we skipped a lot. And there's two very good reasons for skipping a lot. First of all, this series is designed to be an overview of the scriptures. And so we can't go verse by verse. We're trying to establish a good framework for understanding the whole. And secondly, I'm going to return to this life of Joseph one day, one day soon, within the next year or two, and really spend some time there dwelling there, uh, all the great lessons we can learn from the life of Joseph and his family. And we'll see a great deal there. So what happened in those interim uh, passages? I'll summarize it for you, but your homework is to read them. It would be very helpful for you to read Genesis chapters 25 through 50 to really understand what we're talking about here today. Abraham passed away. Uh, I know, I, I hope that's not a spoiler, but I'm pretty sure you knew it was going to happen. It's kind of a trend in the Bible. Uh, Esau and Jacob were born. Jacob misbehaved. Uh, the promise is passed on, though. It's passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob, through scamming and getting scammed, he grew in his faith and his faithfulness and eventually had 12 sons. And most pertinent to our context is Joseph, the 11th of his sons. And he was to uh, his father, Jacob, a favorite. His brothers were very jealous and angry about his this 
obvious favoritism. Uh, they plotted to kill him uh, because of this favoritism, but also because of Joseph revealing to them that he had had these dreams, that the whole family would one day bow down to him. And so they plot to kill him, but instead sell him into slavery. And so Joseph is sold into slavery, uh, into Egypt, and now a slave, he begins to make the best of it. He becomes the head of the household to his master, Potiphar, and uh, becomes very uh, apt at running the household and and running the investments of Potiphar and everything else. But then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of making an advance on her. And so he is put into prison. Again, Joseph makes the best of it, Uh, makes the best of his opportunity in prison, actually becoming in charge in prison under the warden there. Now, Pharaoh uh, had some bad dreams, and Joseph's reputation for interpreting dreams, which he earned uh, by helping a couple fellows in prison, uh, earns him the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And his dream concerns a coming famine. And Joseph's timely interpretation of these dreams gives him the opportunity to help Pharaoh prepare. Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything in the kingdom. And Joseph begins to make plans to save up everything they can for a period of seven years to survive the coming seven years of famine. And in doing so, they successfully saved their nation and many others who came to them for help during this famine. This famine drove his family from Canaan to Egypt, and they have a profoundly tearful reunion. And I'm greatly summarizing this story, but read chapters 37 through 50 in a single sitting, and you'll be very moved by what happens there. So the whole family ends up moving to Egypt. This is how the Israelites end up in Egypt. When Jacob, or Israel as he was renamed, uh, when he dies, The brothers fear that Joseph will now take revenge on them for what they did. Because after all, they did a betrayal of the worst kind. Uh, Joseph ended up separated from the love of his father, from his family for 20 years because of what they did, suffering slavery, suffering imprisonment. His father the whole time believing that he was dead because of the deception of his brothers. This great separation... Uh, and this, the duration of the separation certainly left his brothers thinking, well, now that dad's gone, Joseph's going to take his revenge. Joseph was being good while dad was there, not to break his heart anymore, but now we're in trouble. So they come to Joseph repentant and asking for forgiveness, uh, fearing for their lives from their brother. And that's where we join the narrative in Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 20. Let's take a look at this. So they come to Joseph and they fall down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's start with a word of prayer. 
Father God, we praise your name this day, and we thank you for bringing us together here virtually, and we thank you, Lord, for your great scriptures that they teach us so much, and that is our our prayer for today, that we understand what we're reading here, and that you apply it to our hearts, and we begin to walk in these great truths, that we may bear more fruit in your kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here you have in this single verse, or these two verses rather, 19 and 20, you have the most succinct summary of the meaning of everything that's occurred in chapters 37 through 50. And the big idea I want to get across to you today is this, that in his providence, God works through the faithfulness of his people to bring salvation to many. So you'll notice there were three things there, God's providence, the faithfulness of his people, and salvation for many. Let's begin with God's providence. Uh, We want to take a look at Romans 8.28. Now turn there and we'll get uh, ready for that. Uh, But I want to point out the absurdity of what Joseph has said. His brothers were so jealous of him, they so hated him that they plotted to kill him. Now they settled for selling him into slavery, then lied to his father about it to cover it up, showing him falsified evidence of his death, Joseph's famous colorful coat that Jacob had given him covered with blood. And then so after Jacob dies, they come asking for forgiveness and Joseph is obviously already put all this behind him. He acknowledges that they had done evil, but that God had brought good out of it. What we see lived out in the life of Joseph is the principle of Romans 8.28. Look what the scripture says here. Uh, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to to his purpose. Now this is important because I want to show you that Romans 8:28 has two things that we need to note about this verse. First of all is this that this promise is limited to God's people. It says those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. Only the saved, only those that are in Jesus Christ love God and they only love God because he first loved us even while we were yet sinners. Now, secondly, um, good here is going to be defined in terms of God's idea of good. And this is important. This is no minor thing here because look what it says here, that all things work together for good for the people of God. So good, as you read the Bible, it becomes clear that what God means by good are those things that lead to the salvation of people. Then it leads to the sanctification of his people. That is the furthering, uh, setting apart of those people to make them holy, to make them Christ-like. And it refers to the provision of the necessities of God's people. Jesus promises that when we seek first the kingdom, he will provide for our necessities. Now, it doesn't mean a brand new BMW or a larger house. This means what we need for doing the work of God, everything we need for doing the work of God. 
And good is also defined in terms of our kingdom usefulness. In other words, as we grow in character and as we exercise the gifts that God gave us, we become more useful for his kingdom. And so what we are seeing here in terms of this verse is this, that in all things, and it's very general, it means anything that happens, good or bad, God is working to bring about godly benefits to his people. So this is limited to his people and it is limited to his definition for good. This working of God through the course of events toward his own goals, we call providence. Now in the word providence, you see the word provide. You know, it can be seen there as as the root of this word. And so God's providence is his provision for his people. In this context, we're talking about his providence in regard to his people specifically. In this story and in Joseph's profound summary, we see God's providence as the very basis for Joseph's profound confession that he makes. Well, let's uh, learn a little bit more about God's providence. God's providence is the basis of Joseph's forgiveness. God's providence is the basis of Joseph's forgiveness. He sees this chain of events, but he sees the results that God wrought, what God did as a result of those events. Think about this in the life of Joseph. If he isn't sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt and become, uh, become in the position to help during the famine. If he doesn't go, you know, if he doesn't have a dream interpretation for Pharaoh, there's no preparation for the famine. You can do this with any detail in the life of Joseph. You can look back on these things and you can see, okay, if he hadn't had a good attitude about being in slavery and did his very best to serve anyway and been such a benefit to Potiphar, then maybe he wouldn't have drawn the attention of Potiphar's wife. And maybe he wouldn't have been falsely imprisoned and then in the position to interpret dreams to men that would eventually bring that information to Pharaoh. See, Joseph sees every event in his past as essential to the good results that God had brought in saving many people. So how can he harbor resentment for what they did if what they did, God ultimately brought about this tremendous blessing to save at least hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people? Our confidence then is in the success of God's plan. See, God's providence was the basis for Joseph's forgiveness, but God's providence is also our confidence in the success of God's plans. We live out Romans 8:28 as Christians. We live that out as our ultimate hope. Romans 8, I believe to be the pinnacle of the Bible, the peak of joy in the New Testament, because in it, Paul is giving 
the results of our great salvation. He's explained the gospel up to this point in Romans, and he comes to kind of a crescendo in this chapter, and that crescendo finds itself in words that you've probably heard, who therefore can separate us from the love of God? Can anything, can even death or life or any created thing separate us? And of course, his answer is no, nothing can separate us because of what God has done. And here in Romans 8, 28 is our ultimate hope that all things that happen God is working to the good of those he ultimately saves in Jesus Christ. He moves his plans forward. He keeps his promises. And the Old Testament is a perfect revelation of this. It is instructive about this issue. We can trust this promise in our lives. And as we read the scriptures, we see God is found to be faithful again and again and again. And as we read and as we learn, that faithfulness encourages us. It shows us the pattern of God that he does what he says he's going to do. And he says he's going to bless his people. And he says he's going to work things for the good. And he says what he starts, he'll finish in their lives. And he says he will come back for us, that he's preparing a place, that he will make all things new, that he will judge the living and the dead, etc., etc. And so here we have in the Old Testament, great examples of his faithfulness to do these exact things. Here's what I want you to think about in terms of God's providence, his provision to accomplish what he wants to do throughout life. How can we be certain that Jesus will return? that he's gone to prepare a place, that he'll give us final victory over evil in the world, that when we die, we'll go to be with him. The only way we can have such confidence and such hope is in a knowledge of God's providence. We have to believe he is in control or all that we have are fantasies and wishes. So God's providence is also our victory over circumstances. To believe that God is working gives us hope. What did God do? Think about this. In the story of Joseph, what did God do to keep him going? Well, early in his life, we see that God gave dreams to him. Dreams of a future in which Joseph would become the one that his family would bow down to. Now, by bowing down, we don't mean that he's a God being worshiped by them, but we do mean that they recognize in him something worthy of honor. Now, this is backwards in the family. I mean, he is the 11th of 12 And it is normally mother and father receive the greatest honor and then the firstborn and descending from there in honor. So here we find Joseph near the bottom of the list in the the honor um, order of his household. And he has these dreams. But I think maybe those dreams kept him going. Because he believed those dreams to be of God. He believed those dreams to speak of something yet future. And so even when he was in the pit of despair, sold into slavery or in the prison, there 
were those dreams, the memories of those things, and he saw them as promises of God. But he had something else to encourage him as well. He had the Word of God. Promises were handed down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the children of Jacob. And we know that these were passed down, and we know that they were expressed because they're handed all the way down. And look what Joseph says at the end of his life to show that he was very well aware of these promises. It says here, Joseph said to his brothers, now this is uh, sometime later when he's about to die, um, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry you. I'm sorry about that moving around there. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. And then he makes them swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so his dying wish, he's so certain that the promises of God will happen is that he tells, um, he tells his brothers, Hey, take me and bury me in that land because one day God's going to take you to it. These were the things passed down through his grandfather and his father and to him and his brothers. This is important. Dreams and the word of God kept Joseph going. But do you see, and I want you to see the role of providence here. These things are useless. Dreams and the word of God are useless without some knowledge of the providence of God. We have to know that God is both willing and able to keep his promises, and this is his providence. And through providence, we can move forward in faith. And it's ultimately faith that we have in his providence when we talk about our faith in God. And when we have that faith in his providence and we have the word of God and its promises, we are move above circumstances. We have victory over circumstances because we know that God can overcome and will overcome the very worst of circumstances to work in us what he desires. Even things that are our fault. Maybe Joseph had some responsibility for the bad things that happened to him. Maybe he kind of overplayed the dream thing. And he, you know, when he portrayed these things to his brothers, which I'm not sure was altogether wise to tell his brothers of these things anyway. Um, when he told these things to him, maybe he had a tone of arrogance. Maybe he was bragging about the position that he would have one day. Now, the scripture doesn't say so, and we don't find Joseph acting arrogantly anywhere else. But I say this, that even if he wasn't careful enough about how he brought forth those dreams, even if he maybe wasn't careful enough around Potiphar's wife, even if his sufferings were partially his fault, God and his providence work through them to the saving of many as he worked through the errors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, we don't need to have conjecture about whether Joseph's situation was any part his fault. Look at his father 
and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't perfect. They made mistakes. Yet even in the mistakes, God brought forth his plan and kept his promises to them. God's providence is the basis of our victory over circumstances. God's providence is also the key to our faith, our thankfulness. If you believe that everything that happens in life is random or a result of the will of man, you really have no need for God. If you believe the truth, however, like the Bible says that all good things come from God, then you can only believe it because of his providence. And isn't this the very essence of worship? To give God credit for who he is and what he's done. Thankfulness is the beginning of worship, and it is impossible without some notion of God's providence. We cannot be thankful if we don't think God is responsible for the good things that we have. Now, I want to give you a cross-reference here. It's kind of an odd one, but go to Romans chapter 1, and you know starting about verse 18, it describes the wrath of God being revealed, and it describes the sinfulness of man and the downward spiral of sin. And when we read that list, a lot of sins pop out to us as being uh, profound or terrible or horrible, but I want you to look at where that list starts. The list begins with a failure to acknowledge him as God and to thank him. God's providence is the basis of our thankfulness. And we should join Joseph in his faith. See, there are uh, people, we call them deists would be the term for it, people that believe that God made the world and set uh, some particular laws in, in order and things like that. And then he just set it up and he let it go. He kind of let it take its own course. Yeah, he, he created things, but then he wasn't much involved after that. He's pretty much hands off. It's almost like if you want an analogy, he set up a board game. Okay, it had some governing rules. He put some players on it and, and gave them the pieces to play. And then he just sits back and watches how it plays out. Look, if that were true, Mankind could take credit for all that has gone well. We would have no cause to worship him other than his initial having created things. But everything after that's on us. So the Bible presents a God, however, that's involved. A God that is constantly working in all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. The big idea of today's message I'll bring you back to, we talked about in the beginning, in his providence, God works through the faithfulness of his people to bring salvation to many. Let's talk about the faithfulness of his people. The faithfulness of the people of God places them in a position to experience God. Look how Joseph experienced God. And by experience, I mean, you just don't read something about him or you just don't talk to somebody about him. I'm talking about seeing before your eyes manifested what you read about in his word. You actually see it happening. The faithfulness of the people of God put them in a position to experience God. See, when Joseph was sold into slavery, 
he continued to be faithful and serve God. He was a man of godly character. And when he served Potiphar, he served him to the very best of his ability. And that put him in a position then to be blessed of God, to be right in the middle ground zero of what God was doing. He was faithful when he was in prison. He built a reputation as one who could be trusted. And so a couple men shared their dreams with him and he was able to give interpretation of their dreams. That eventually led to him having the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams to the saving of many people. His faithfulness put him in a position to experience God. And the same is true for us. When we are faithful, we are in a position to truly experience God. Remember that Jesus said that those who have been found faithful in the little things will be given the bigger things, the things that we think are more important, the things that we think are more profound. We must first be found faithful in the small things in order to move on to bigger things that he will entrust to us. Joseph experienced God. 20 years between the dreams that he had and the fulfillment of those dreams. In a literal fashion, they came to him and bowed down asking forgiveness. Faithfulness to God puts us in a position to experience God. Faithfulness in whatever position. The faithfulness of the people of God reveals their true faith in God. Faith without works is dead, is what James says in James chapter 2. But when we remain faithful, making the best of all our circumstances, we show that we truly believe and it encourages other people. Sometimes you don't even know who you're encouraging by acting in faithfulness to God, by showing up week after week and teaching the Sunday school class or by time after time bringing up God in, in front of other people, whether you're rejected or not, whether, whether people come to salvation or whether they reject your message, others see what you're doing. They see your faithfulness and they are encouraged and you give them an example to follow. And this reveals great faith. And this revealing of faith, this brings God glory. When we bring God glory, that means to bring him attention. That means to bring him good praises. See, God gave promises to Joseph and his family. God gave dreams to Joseph. And then he is seen fulfilling those things through Joseph. And who gets glory at the end of the story after all the things that happen? I mean, you know, they come to Joseph and they're like, you know, take it easy on us. Forgive us. You know, we did wrong and you did good. And Joseph could have been like, you're right. I did good. That was, that was me that did that. That was me that, did you see what I did? I got in that place of slavery and, and I did my very best and I earned a reputation as, as a great worker. And I continued that in prison. In prison, I tell you, I was the guy in prison who took hold of my situation. And I'm the one who dragged myself to the heights of that situation 
nation. And because my greatness, Pharaoh recognized my greatness and put me before uh, the whole kingdom in order to save the whole kingdom. That was me who did that. That's not what Joseph says at all. I'll remind you where we started this whole thing. Right here in verse 20, he says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph gives God all the glory for what happens here. Joseph brings all the credit and lays it at the feet of God. Why? because he understands the providence of God. He understands that all of his plans and abilities and work and strife and everything are totally useless without God being the one who's working his will, keeping his promises, bringing salvation, even if it comes through Joseph. Boy, this is good stuff in this story right here. And so the faithfulness of his people uh, brings God glory. And it also is the channel of blessings for any circumstance. Because if we believe in the promises of God and we believe he is fulfilling those in good and bad circumstances, when we find ourselves in the bad circumstances, we will have a peace about it. We can even have great joy. Because when our eyes are opened to what God's will is, and we see him working his will in the events around us, we receive great joy that God is pushing forth his will, that he is going to save many people. Another great blessing is contentment. Think of the contentment that comes with somebody, you know, who is, who is seeing God work, who is understanding the providence of God, even in their difficult situations. I'm often uh, approached by people and as a, a form of greeting that people do, I think when people greet one another, they don't always really mean what they're saying. They're just saying it out of habit instead of just saying, hello, you know, they say, hello, how are you? And, you know, do they really want a dissertation about precisely how you are? Maybe they do. Maybe this is a good friend. Maybe it's just someone saying something out of habit. One of the things that people say that kind of gets my attention is, how's life treating you? And I'm always amused at that one. And I actually answer that one a little differently. I say, well, it doesn't matter how life is treating me. Because for a believer in Jesus Christ, that is honestly true. It doesn't matter how life treats you. All that matters is that you know God and you are faithful to him. It can be a disaster from a worldly point of view, but you have opportunity to be faithful in the disaster. This is the healthiest of lifestyles for any person is in any given situation, not to be so focused on the drama or the the pain or the misery of the situation, but to be focused on, okay, what can I do? How can I be faithful to God? How can I demonstrate my faith? That is a healthy way to live life because then the quality of your life does has no reference 
to the circumstances of your life. You have risen above the circumstances. And being faithful to God is the channel of blessings, of peace and joy and contentment. All those things that are the fruit of the Spirit, all of those things that Jesus talks about are the coming character attributes that he wants us to experience. The faithfulness of the people of God, therefore, is their primary focus in every circumstance. God has ordained my circumstances, so I must be content in them and make the very best of them. Now, on the surface, my circumstances might be my fault. For that, I should repent. But even if my circumstances are my fault and I repent of those things, my focus has to be faithfulness going forward. My focus is faithfulness to God, whether uh, regardless of any situation of a true believer, that's got to be our mentality. Circumstances are never an excuse for unfaithfulness. Are things good? Be faithful. Are things bad for you right now? Be faithful. This is what winners do. They focus on faithfulness. They focus on what is in their control, regardless of the circumstances. I want you to think about how this is backwards from the way that the world is going and the way that the world is thinking right now here in 2020. I don't know when you're watching this. It could be years from now. But right now, we're seeing a great uh, bloom of this Marxist kind of thinking, which defines people according to their circumstance. Oh, you're this color, or you're this gender, or you have this kind of a lifestyle. And, and for those reasons, you are oppressed. And you have to overthrow the oppressors. Well, what does that do for your focus? Well, first of all, that convinces you that you're a victim. And secondly, it puts all your focus of, of anger and jealousy and envy, everything that is that brings forth the greatest evil in people, it brings all that to the forefront as you focus upon those who are your so-called oppressors. And now you want revenge. And now you feel entitled to reparations. And what does that say? Instead of saying, God, you are so good. You've given me all things. You are saying, I am owed this. I am owed that because of my situation. What a horrible way to live. And what an ungodly way to live. The godly path is to be faithful in every circumstance. To have that be our primary focus. Well, in God's providence, God works through the faithfulness of his people to bring many to salvation. And here's what I, I want you to see here in the verse that we just paid a look at. Uh, I'm going to go back there for a moment. Look what it says here. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Yeah, that is a powerfully important thing that they put there. Now, the King James Version has it like this. The King James Version says, to save much people alive. And I like that translation better because that's really what happened here is that what God did through Joseph was he saved many lives from this famine. 
Remember the plot here, the plot of the whole Bible, that is. The context we find ourselves in is the entire scripture, the plot of the history of planet Earth. Man has sinned, but God has promised to bring forth a chosen seed, Jesus Christ. Here in Genesis, he's working with the family that will ultimately bring Jesus Christ. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's renamed as Israel, he's going to bring Jesus Christ through this family. And so we're seeing how he's going to do this so that Jesus Christ can come, that he can walk here upon the earth, that he can prove who he is through fulfilling prophecies and typologies by doing miraculous signs and wonders to show his identity and then to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins and then to be raised again and begin to spread this saving good news all over the world through his body, the church. That's the plot. That's what's happening here. And here we see here that it is done that they should be kept alive. This is why what happens in the Old Testament can be analogous to how we live in Christ today. Because in the Old Testament, they're bringing forth Christ and carrying along the promises of God as he providentially brings it to happen. Well, we're doing the same thing. We're bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And he, through us, is saving souls. And he's doing it through our faithfulness to him and his commands. Everything that occurs in the Old Testament is about bringing Jesus, the head crusher, the chosen seed of the woman. And so it is with us. Let us be single-minded, therefore, bringing everything in our lives into accord with this one goal, with this one obsession to bring forth Jesus Christ into the world by his gospel through our faithfulness to God. Jesus Christ is the goal of all history and nothing else matters except that our lives be aligned with him. And so my encouragement to you this day is this. Be saved. Be saved. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of God is that you will be saved. Repent of your sins means to turn and decide, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to live my own life without regard to God. I'm going to turn away from doing things my way. I'm going to turn to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to trust that what he did on the cross pays the price for my sins. And I'm going to trust that just as he was raised again, he'll raise me from the dead and he'll give me life if I but believe in him. And so that's my encouragement to you today. First of all, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. The death rate of the human race is 100%. And things in this world are difficult. Things are difficult. 
hard. There are bad things that happen in this world. But do you understand? That is actually by design. See, just as the famine drove Joseph's family to him, so all the difficulties of today are driving people to Jesus Christ. If there were no problems at all, if we just lived our lives without any poverty or strife or war or famine or, or pain or sorrow or sickness, and just one day just we died and that was it, what would be showing us that something's wrong? And we would eventually accept death as just a part of life. And we'd say, well, you know, that's just what happens. You're here for a while, enjoy it while you're here, and then you're gone. But the truth is this. The truth is that God is driving us to His Son, Jesus Christ, providentially working things to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, the first good of which is salvation itself. So be saved. And secondly, if you are already saved, I encourage you to read this story again and look at the single-minded devotion of Joseph to do the will of God. It's not expressly stated. He simply lives it out. He just does it. And take that as an example because he is a type of Christ. Yeah, there's a beautiful typology here of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to detail that in the notes. So you'll have to get hold of the notes uh, and you can find them along with the sermon in order to really appreciate what God has done here. Be faithful. Make it your number one priority and pray for that today as I pray for you right now. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing us together for this time. We thank you for giving the word of God that we can know you, that we can understand. And Lord, that we have opportunity to be faithful. Lord, you are worthy of our attention, worthy of our worship, because you are bringing to pass all that you have promised. You are making a great numerous people from every tribe nation language. Lord, we pray this day that you'll encourage us on these things and that you will continue to make for yourself a great people. And Lord, that you will be glorified and worshiped by them forever. We thank you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that today. Uh, what I'd like you to do is if you have any questions or comments, please contact us. You can find more information at whitesrun.org or you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Those will be personally answered by me. Uh, whatever questions you might have or even input you might have concerning this sermon. So I pray that you consider these things, that you read the scriptures and search them to see if what I've said is true. God bless you and amen.